listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first reading comes from Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Our second reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 5 through 26 and 39 through 42. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the, the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, 
and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this, the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come where the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He has told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. And church, please welcome Max Steiner. Hey, y'all. This sermon is going to be a test of whether my jokes were not funny last service or if it was the missing hour of sleep. So maybe you guys can help me out with that. So my wife, Hannah, was a dance major in college, which she will tell you is the most fun major you can possibly choose. I'll have to take her word for that one. I will go on record saying that I have beat Hannah at every dance contest we've ever been in. It was only one time, but I did win. And when Hannah was in college, she was going through a period where she was getting really easily exhausted, which was weird because she was in great shape from her dance program. So she self-diagnosed as being anemic. She started eating a ton of spinach, she was taking a supplement, but her symptoms kept getting progressively worse. It actually got so bad that she was charting a path to her classes based on the number of benches she could sit on on the way because she was getting so exhausted. What Hannah didn't know, it, was, it wasn't an iron deficiency that was her problem. She actually was developing blood clots in her lungs. And it was a really serious thing. In fact, her finally receiving a correct diagnosis literally saved her life. The iron she was adding to her diet was doing nothing to address her problem. In our text today, they present us two stories of a thirst as a kind of extended metaphor for our sinful condition, the place that we find ourselves before God. In our Old Testament reading, as the Israelites wander in the desert, we see an illustration of how their thirst makes them break out in rebellion against God. They don't trust him. In our New Testament reading, we see how Christ serves as the one who ultimately cures that sinful condition. And like how my wife was looking to iron to solve a problem that was actually genetic, we often look to things that are insufficient to solve our sinful condition as well. What we're going to see in our two texts is that 
Are wilderness wanderings producing us legitimate cravings, legitimate needs? But there's only one thing that will truly satisfy us, and that's a new life in Christ. So the wanderings of this world, they will produce in us legitimate needs. There's only one thing that will satisfy us, and that's Jesus. So in our first text, Exodus 17, Israel's just crossed the Red Sea. They've seen God miraculously deliver them from slavery. And they've been called into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And it's in that context that we get episode after episode of the people complaining against God. It's actually kind of wild to read. They say to God, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To make us thirst and kill our children and our livestock? What, what are we doing here? It's, their response is almost hard to believe because they're in the middle of being led to freedom. You think they'd be happy to be on the way, right? They've just exited slavery. They're on the way to the promised land. But this becomes an occasion, their thirst becomes an occasion for them to doubt the character of God. Already, several days in, they've forgotten that he's saving them. He has saved them, he is saving them, and he will save them. But in their sin, what they find themselves thinking is, God doesn't love me. If he loved me, he wouldn't let me be so thirsty. He wouldn't have brought me to a place that feels like this, that looks like this. It, it sounds so petty, it almost feels childish, but this is the position we often find ourselves before God in. How often do we find ourselves wanting something, lacking something that we do need, but we use it as an, as an opportunity to accuse God of not being good or not loving us? So I have a story to tell you all about myself, and I'm not the good guy in this story. Uh, a few years ago, we were deliberating over a decision. And I think some of y'all in this room have been in this place as well. We were trying to decide if we wanted to buy a minivan. And uh, I know it's a contentious subject. A lot of opinions in this room. I'll tell you we are a minivan family. And as we were going to buy that minivan, I was pulling my wife's Ford Fusion out of our garage. And as I'm backing out, the power steering on it fails. And I was not expecting that. Didn't turn the steering wheel fast enough. And I hear a sickening crunch as the side mirror tears off of the car. It's like, okay, that's not great. And I was mad. I was really mad. So I reach over to open the door to inspect how bad the damage is, and I pulled so hard on the interior door mechanism, I literally broke it inside the car. I had to pull a NASCAR and roll down the window to open up the door from the outside to see what I've just done to our car. So at this point, I've knocked like $1,000 off of our trade-in value easily. And what did I do in that place? Did I say, like, wow, that was an ironic time for the power steering to fail? <laughs> or did I say, wow, I'm, I'm really mad. What's going on inside of me that I'm having this response? No, what I did was I turned to Hannah, and I said, God lets bad things happen to us. Or at least that's what I meant. I may have used some different words. <laughs> it was not my proudest moment. But truly, that was my immediate thought in that moment, is that God lets bad things happen to me. When I was experiencing thirst in the moment, my response was to blame God for something that was going on in my life. We turn our bad moments into accusations against God. And what we see in Israel's story is a narrative exploration of the problem of sin. The way it warps our understanding of who we are and who God is. And the issue lies in how quick we are to forget the nature of the God who is saving us and who will save us. It's a sobering way to think about it, but really what affects all of us is a kind of spiritual dementia. Our faculties for knowing, for remembering, for worshiping, for loving have all been tainted by the spiritual sickness we have that needs to be cured. 
Elsewhere, Paul explores this bent of our hearts in Romans 1, saying, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul's language here, it describes not only a condition of spiritual sickness, it describes the posture of rebellion that we find ourselves in. We know who God is, but we refuse to acknowledge him as such. Our hearts, the very center of our being, has been affected by this rebellion. Instead of seeing sin as an opportunity to turn to God, to run back to him, we use it as the occasion to accuse him. Yet, our Exodus narrative doesn't end there. Praise be to God. God responds to these people who are complaining against him with mercy. He tells Moses, Take the rod by which I led you out of the land of Egypt and strike a rock with it, and from it flows living water which satiates the people's thirst. He meets them in their need. So what we see in Israel's wilderness wanderings is what we feel in this life. As we make our way through the wilderness of this life, we have thirst, legitimate thirst, legitimate things we need, but they're tainted by sin which causes us to doubt God. Yet, God is kind. He meets us in our thirst even when we have that posture towards him. And this whole story serves as a diagnostic of our sinful condition. And it begs the question, as Israel was delivered from its thirst, how will Jesus deliver us as our truer exodus from the thirst that we all carry with us? And that's what John is exploring in chapter 4 of his gospel. So he's picking up the narrative, or we're picking up the narrative, as Jesus is on the move from the south to the north. In the verse before we started, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, which is not true. Probably not good to disagree with a gospel author, but what I mean is in a geographic sense, passing through Samaria, this region where our scene takes place, it would have been the fastest route, but it also would have been a normal thing during this time period because the hatred between Jews and Samaritans was so intense that Jewish people would actually take the time to walk all the way around the region of Samaria so they wouldn't, air quotes, dirty themselves by making the passage through. They didn't want to make themselves unclean. So for John to tell us that Jesus had to pass this direction, it's less a statement about geography or about where the major highway was. It's more a statement about he had a meeting to make in Samaria. He wanted to have an encounter. So we find Jesus at a well near Sychar, a well that Jacob gave to Joseph. And this is a territory with a contentious history between these two people. And if this feels a little bit overblown, like, can't they just get along? I love what N.T. Wright pointed out here. He said, hey, if this sounds like too much to you, I want you to try going to the Middle East today and telling somebody they don't have rights to a piece of land or to some water or to an ancient religious site and see how that goes for you. This is a tense scene, right? There's cultural, ethnic, political, religious tension between these two individuals, and it's against that tense backdrop where we're expecting something potentially explosive to happen, that something very human drives the action. Jesus is thirsty. He's thirsty. He's fully God, yet he became like us in every way. So here's our king seated in the dirt next to a well, and he's asking for a drink. It's honestly a remarkably boring situation, which makes me wonder, what are the parts of our life that in our boredom God is trying to meet us? where he's trying to make himself known to us. And here's this woman, and she's thirsty. She's out at the well because she needs a drink or to get water for the house. 
But John gives us a detail here that can feel like throwaway information. He says it was about noon. And noon is not the time that you want to be out drawing water in the middle of a desert climate. It would have been typical for groups of women to go together, either at sunup or sundown. Yet here we find this woman by herself in the heat of the day, and she's thirsty. And if we're paying careful attention to how John structures his gospel, we start to get an idea that the thirst this woman feels is for more than just water. Because John arranges settings where physical things point to greater spiritual realities. In the last chapter, we saw Jesus talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus really struggles to understand that when he's talking about a new birth, he's referring to a spiritual birth, not just a physical one. In a couple chapters, Jesus will be talking with his disciples, and he'll say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, truly you can have no part in me, to which the disciples are like, can you find a different metaphor, please? Because this is kind of creeping everybody out. So this is what John does. He uses physical settings to point us to a spiritual reality. And so our interest should be piqued as we head into this scene. We're wondering, what is the thirst that she carries with her? How will Jesus uniquely satisfy it? And to remind us again, what we see is in our wilderness wanderings, we have legitimate cravings, legitimate needs, but there's only one thing that will truly satisfy us, and that's Jesus. One thing to note here is both Jesus and this woman are thirsty. There's no problem with carrying a thirst, with having a longing for something, whether that be physical or spiritual. The problem comes from how we tend to respond in a posture of rebellion against God. So Jesus begins this interaction, this conversation with her asking for a drink, to which she replies in shock. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus responds to her surprise, saying, if you knew who is asking you, you'd be asking me, which is a weird thing to say. This would be like if somebody came up to you asking for spare change, and before you could even answer, they said, if you knew what I had, you'd be asking me for some change. It's a weird thing to say. And we we get an impression in this scene that this woman probably thinks Jesus has a screw loose. He's crossing an ethnic, a cultural boundary by beginning a conversation with her in a public place. He's asking her for water. It's strange. But for those of us who have been tracking with John's gospel— We're seeing the spiritual imagery that Jesus is using. So he was just talking with Nicodemus about being reborn by water and spirit. He was just in an episode where he was baptizing people, where they were lowered into the water and raised out in newness of life in him. So water for him is this symbol by which he is creating in us a new heart, a heart that no longer sits in that posture of rebellion, refusing to acknowledge God as God, but a heart that bubbles up to eternal life by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And if all of us saw Jesus as that, we would all be asking him for a drink. This woman replies, and she says, in a way that seems like is humoring him, how can you get this water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So she's kind of going along with whatever he's saying, and she's trying to keep the conversation in the tried and true debate between these two people groups. Like, let's talk about land rights and how we've had this centuries back debate about who owns what, Jews or Samaritans. But Jesus is, in fact, greater than Jacob. He's bringing a new covenant that's not determined by tribal allotments or land boundaries. It's something for everybody. And so Jesus tells her, whoever drinks of the water I'm talking about will never thirst again. The Old Testament is full of these prophetic visions of a day when, as Isaiah puts it, God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
the imagery he's putting forward, it's closely tied to the new covenant imagery of a new heart in us. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. A heart that can respond correctly to the thirst of life by continuing to trust in God. This is what the Holy Spirit gives us. He makes us new. The, the kind of drink Jesus is offering, it doesn't ensure that we will never wander in the wilderness again, but it does allow us to respond in a different way when we find ourselves thirsty. And the Samaritan woman replies, saying, give me this water because I don't want to come here anymore. And honestly, it's at this point in the text where I have a hard time telling, is she starting to get interested in what Jesus is offering her or is she still kind of playing along with the ramblings of this guy? Which honestly may feel familiar to some of us. Maybe some of us can remember a time in our life where Jesus' words felt a little crazy, but we also wanted them to be true. Right? I want this to be true. I want my thirst to be satisfied. Tell me about how this can happen. Either way, her reasoning is telling. She says, I don't want to come here anymore. She's chosen the heat of the day to come draw water because to be in the public eye is a source of shame for her. She feels shamed. And Jesus puts his finger directly on why in his response. He says, go call your husband and tell him to come here. This is the moment where the scene changes. So if before things were playful banter or I'll put up with your ramblings, now it is something different. Jesus isn't wildly changing the subject. He's showing her where her greatest need is, where her thirst comes from. He's showing her where her shame is and what she's trying to hide. So her thirst isn't going to be resolved by ultimately determining who owns the rights to this well. It's not going to be resolved by coming at a time of day where nobody else will see her. The thirst he's aiming to resolve is her own broken heart. And this is a regular occurrence for Jesus in the Gospels. He'll be in the middle of instructing on the values of the kingdom or on telling people what it means to follow him. And in his mercy, he will single out somebody and he will put his thumb directly on their greatest source of pain or their greatest idol in hopes that they would follow after him. You can think about the rich young ruler. You want to follow me? Great. Sell everything you have and then come after me. That's this kind of moment. And the woman replies to Jesus saying, I don't have a husband. And she's shying away from something that is deeply painful to her. And while it's technically correct that she doesn't have a husband, Jesus tells her, no, you've had five. And the man you live with now is not your husband. This is why she's at the well at noon. This is why she's been cast out from her peers. This is why she thirsts. And it's easy to come to this text and think that Jesus' goal here, or John's goal here, is that Jesus is calling out a promiscuous woman. And maybe that's what's going on. Maybe this woman is a serial adulterer. But I, I think that's what we will come away with if we use a modern understanding of marriage and divorce on this scene. It may be more complicated than that. For her to say that she's living with somebody now, it would have invited moral judgment on her. But it also would have been a normal occurrence in a time when women could not meaningfully provide for themselves. For her to be living with a man may have been the only means by which she could live. Maybe what's gone on in this woman's life is that she was not able to have children. And one husband after another divorced her because she could not produce what they wanted. Or maybe she had one husband after another die to the point where she has such a stigma around her name, the guy she's living with now won't even marry her for fear that he'll be the next one. Maybe she just marries bad guys. Regardless of how she got here, the scene is meant to be more than just thinking like, wow, there's Jesus confronting that promiscuous woman. 
It's meant to invite us into attention. This woman has ways she has sinned and ways she has been sinned against, and it has produced for her an identity rooted in shame. An identity where she feels like she cannot be loved by others or loved by God. And she operates out of that sense of shame. And we do the same thing. All of us have ways we have sinned and ways that we have been sinned against. And all of us live our lives in a way where we try to insulate ourselves against that feeling of brokenness that is within us. I want you to think. I want you to pause. What is this for you? If Jesus were meeting you at the well, what would he put his finger on as the thing that you don't want others to see about you or that you don't want to be true about you? What's the source of hurt that you try to cover? Ed Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, he talks about how to feel shame is to sense that there's something wrong with us. And he breaks out a few attributes of shame. He says it's to feel naked to feel exposed to other people, that they can see what's really going on. It's to feel unclean or defiled, like I've been made impure by something that's gone on in me or to me. It's to feel outcast, cut off from others, exiled. To have a sense of shame is to recognize we're not what we're meant to be. And shame gets a lot of attention in our current cultural moment. There's toxic shame that's a real thing. But shame is also the correct response to sin. We're not who we're meant to be. We're not who we should be because we're, in fact, broken. The issue is that we try to solve our shame by hungering after things that can't fulfill it. We're eating bags of spinach when our hurts, our wounds, our disease is far deeper than that. We cover ourselves with trips to the well at noon and with marriage after marriage. And Jesus is here in this woman's life telling her, this will not satisfy your thirst. This will not produce the change that you want. She can't solve her own shame, but Jesus can. Where in our broken state, we feel outcast, cut off, exiled, Jesus invites us into a new family. Where we feel unclean, Jesus washes us, he purifies us by his own blood. Where we feel exposed, Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. He offers us a new identity free from shame. And as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness so that from it would flow a water of life, so Jesus, as he hung on the cross, was struck on his side so that from him would flow a water of life. He gives us a way out from our shame. And Jesus offers not just a way to cover our shame, to cover what's wrong with us. He offers us a new way of being, a new heart, this spring of water within us welling up to eternal life. And we're offered a chance for rebirth, just like it was offered to Nicodemus. Do you want a new way of being? A new heart which brings forth life instead of death, which when it finds itself thirsty in the wilderness wanderings of our life, is able to cry out with trust in God instead of accusations against him. This is what Jesus is inviting us into when we follow him. The conversation between these two, it continues on and it gets back into some of their historical contexts, which extends beyond what we have time for today. But in the closing action of the scene, the Samaritan woman goes to the town and she says, come, hear this guy who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And it strikes me that in this encounter, Jesus didn't say a lot to her. He didn't present a Genesis to Revelation picture of the gospel. He didn't argue with her to prove to her that Samaritans are wrong and the Jews are right. What he says was, I have living water. Here's the thing that you're thirsting after. 
will you drink? Will you trust in me? He tells her about the Holy Spirit, something bubbling up as new life in her, which will allow her to live in a new way. And he tells her that he's the Messiah, the one who will answer all questions, even if all of her questions were not resolved in that exact moment. And the town goes out, and they meet Jesus, and they invite him to stay with them for two days. And Jesus ends his time with the townspeople saying, it's no longer because of this woman's testimony that we believe, but because we have seen for ourselves. We are invited into the same posture. We do not have to believe because of what somebody else told us. Jesus is seeking an encounter with all of us at the wells of our lives. Jesus has set out for every one of us where he said, I have to pass this way because I have a meeting with you. I want to satisfy your thirst. None of us have shame that is beyond Jesus' restoration. So again, I want you to think, where did Jesus declare himself to you? Where did you have that initial meeting with him? For me, it was on a dirt floor in Juarez, Mexico. Maybe for you, it was a church summer camp or service. Or maybe you hit rock bottom, and in his mercy, he showed you your need. Or maybe you had a kid, and you realized it's probably time for me to get serious about some things. Maybe you've never known a day where it's not true. Maybe it's today. But I want you to think about that moment Because that's not just something that happened in the past for you. That continues to be the character of our Savior. Jesus is still seeking meetings with us at the wells of our life. He's wanting us to know whatever is driving our thirst, whatever place we find ourselves unsatisfied in, he will fulfill us. So to that end, will y'all pray with me? God, you know our hearts. We are thirsty We look to all kinds of things thinking they will quench our thirsts, but they don't. And we find ourselves so often in a posture of rebellion against you, of questioning you even though you've given us living water. So God, we ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who can resolve our shame. Where we feel naked and exposed, you clothe us in righteousness. Where we feel unclean, you purify us. Where we feel othered and exiled, you invite us into a new family. Holy Spirit, we declare to you that we need you. We need a new heart, even for those of us us in this room who have been following you for a long time. We need to be renewed and refreshed. Please be a spring of water in us, leading to eternal life. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.